0: Welcome to the show, everyone. This is the Innovative Schools Podcast, and I am your host, Robbie Lamb. This week, we are speaking about self injury with Kim Johansson. Kim is a counselor who has worked for over 20 years with students who self injure or who have experienced trauma. Kim has presented her work on self injury and suicide at both Harvard and Stony Brook Universities. She is the author of many professional articles on these issues and has just co-authored a new book titled Traumatized Students, School-Based Interventions for Reaching Below the Surface. Before we get to the conversation with Kim, I wanted to mention a couple of alarming statistics about self-injury that you may not be aware of. One study found that nearly one in every six American teenagers engages in self-injury. This equates to about seven million students nationwide who self-injure, which is more than the entire population of several states. And the numbers are on the rise, a recent study found that the self-injury rate among 10 to 14-year-old girls has nearly tripled since 2008. We join the conversation with Kim telling us about what drew her to this line of work.
1: Like a lot of folks in the field, caretaking fields, we, we are called to what we're doing for various reasons. And for me, uh, I would say it all started when my brother first tried to die by suicide when I was 12 and then later did die by suicide a few years later when I was 16. So that really started the ball rolling for me in regards to not only what I've dedicated a large part of my career to, which is helping folks wherever they are, uh, in regards to suicide. So I work with prevention efforts, I certainly do intervention trainings, and also postvention, so folks who've been impacted by suicide in one way or another. But in addition to that work, I also really have dedicated myself to a career that I really believe helps other people heal. And, you know, that's been part of my own healing as well.
0: Thank you for sharing that. So I cited some of the statistics about self injury in the introduction, and you may know more uh, than I do. But some of the stats that I found were 17% of uh, people will self harm during their lifetime. of people who engage in self-harm begin during their teen or pre-adolescent years. Uh, Nearly 50% of those who engage in self-injury have been sexually abused. And the stats just go on and on and on. So that being said, again, before we get too far down the road here, just so we can all be on the same page as far as what self-harm is, I know when I think of self-harm, typically I just think of cutting. But I know there's a lot of other forms that self-injury can take. So, so we can properly talk about the problem, can we first define what self-injury is and maybe some common and maybe even some uncommon forms that people may not think of when they think of self-injury?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you wanting to clarify different terminology and definitions of self-injury. Uh, you know, self-harm and self-injury are actually two very different categories. So, you know, according to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Uh, My field in which we diagnose different types of mental disorders and and health conditions. Uh, Self-injury is defined as any act that actually creates a direct harm to bodily tissue. So where the intent is to cause damage. Whereas self-harming behaviors is a broader category. Um, So self-harming behaviors could be anything that people are doing to put themselves at risk. So that could be putting themselves in situations like risky sexual encounters, um, those kinds of things. Substance use may fall into that category as well, Um, unless ingesting substances is for the purpose of creating damage to, to the body. So there are different categories and in regards to more common forms of self-injury there are actually several. So yes, I agree cutting is the one that we most commonly hear about and that involves, you know, usually shallow cuts to like the wrists or the ankles, other parts of the body and and although it actually is a myth that folks who've had self or a sexual trauma are going to engage in self injury. If I have folks who are referred to me and they are self injuring, maybe on their breasts or their genitals, I'm going to be pretty interested about their history in in regards to sexual trauma. Um, Not always the case, though. Um, You know, I certainly have folks who are cutting on their stomachs or their inner thighs because they don't want other people to know about it. So in addition to cutting, we also see burning so that maybe taking a lighter to, to somebody's wrists or to their to their ankles. Uh, also bone breaking. So somebody who may intentionally, ha- you know, throw themselves um, off of motorcycles or those kinds of things, which I've actually had clients who've, who've done that uh, for the purpose of breaking bones. Um, you know, head banging can be another form of self injury. And although it's a myth that people who have lots of tattoos are self-injuring, if I have somebody who's got a history of self-injury and they're suddenly showing up into my office every week with new tattoos, I'm, I'm going to be asking about that behavior and, and pay attention to that actually being another form of self-injury. Um, so those are some of the more common forms that self-injury can present itself. Yeah,
0: I know from the research I've done, one of the dangerous aspects of self injury is that it's addictive. Is that right?
1: Not for everybody. Okay. You know, some folks will try it out and decide that they don't like it. Um, they may have a low pain threshold, uh, but absolutely, it can be an addictive behavior. And it can be one that I think is set apart maybe from a few other addictive behaviors, certainly not all, uh, because the habituation factor can happen very quickly. And folks can progress um, on the spectrum, and you know, go from non-suicidal self-injury, so NSSI, to more life-threatening forms, uh, where either their life is at risk, or they're at risk of permanent damage to their bodies.
0: So, can you talk about there is a difference between non-suicidal self-injury and the self-injury that has the intent to end in suicide? Right? Yes. Or how would you describe the difference in between just self? injury behavior and self-injury behavior that has a goal of suicide? How can we differentiate between those two types?
1: Great question. And yeah, it's absolutely a myth that just because somebody's self-injuring they're suicidal. However, because of that habituation factor, if folks are not getting treatment pretty early on, if they are routinely engaging in self-injury, um, then they absolutely could become, it could become more life-threatening. So early intervention is, is key.
0: Okay, and we'll get into some uh, interventions uh, a little bit later on in the conversation. You touched on this um, a little bit earlier when you're talking about different misconceptions people have about self injury. What are some misconceptions that are important for people to understand about self-injury, especially maybe educators? What biases might they have when it comes to self-injury that is important for them to recognize when dealing with a student that who's suffering from this?
1: So again, the very first thing I would say is even though when we find out somebody's self-injuring, it can be very uncomfortable uh, for you as the person who may be intervening with that person. Uh, it absolutely does not mean that they're suicidal. You know, there's many other factors that, that can be at play in regards to teasing that out uh, in somebody's risk uh, for engaging in suicidal behavior, life-threatening self-injury. Uh, beyond that, I would say one of the things I really want to stress to educators uh, are, you know, is the fact that so many kids are labeled as manipulative or attention-seeking, So these are the kids that are showing up at counselors' offices on an ongoing basis. They usually do have kind of those shallow cuts to their wrists. And they can be dismissed pretty easily. And I always stress to folks in any of my trainings that make no mistake, kids, uh, we want to take it seriously at all times because what potentially puts that group at risk, if they're being written off, is they may get the message from you that, They need to do more to get your attention so they can actually increase either the intensity or the frequency of their self-injury, putting them and and their lives potentially at risk. So again, early intervention, and we always take it seriously. Um, And I'll just add to that, you know, Michael Hollander, who has done a lot of work with self-injury, you know, his research revealed that only... You know, about five percent of kids who are engaged in self injury were doing it for attention, and you know, my response to that is even out of you know, with that, um, kids are obviously needing attention for reasons. So there's always something that kids are needing, regardless of of how the behavior comes across to others.
0: So you touched on five percent of students who are engaging in this behavior, maybe doing it to gain more attention. What do we know about psychologically? Why are people self so inj?
1: Well, like a lot of other behaviors that can absolutely be addictive, I think there's a couple different reasons. So, uh, Matthew Knox's team and and he was one of the lead researchers, uh, you know, at Harvard in regards to really getting to the why. Why are people self-injuring? And his team also was really involved in pushing through the diagnosis. So now it's a separate diagnosis in the DSM versus being a behavior that's just tagged on to other diagnoses, uh, like borderline personality disorder. And what their group revealed is that there's actually two different um, groups of people who are self-injuring. So you've got folks who are internalizers, and then you've also got folks who are externalizing. Now, can somebody be in both groups? Absolutely. And I can give you examples of that. Um, but the internalizers, these are going to be the folks who are really wanting to keep their behavior under wraps. Um, now, both groups, externalizers and internalizers, they're they're experiencing overwhelming pain. Um, they may not be able to communicate what's going on, uh, what their feelings are, uh, certainly what their needs may be, particularly our younger folks who may still have um. They may not have the social and emotional intelligence that we would like them to have. It can be impaired for various reasons, for example, (coughs) or they just have limited life experience and they just don't have the tools. Uh, So overwhelm is usually a big factor of psychological pain. uh, We also know that kids who are disconnected, who are feeling isolated, they absolutely can be a vulnerable population when it comes to self-injury. And then, of course, we have that habituation factor as well. And internalizers are typically pretty ashamed of their behavior. They don't want other people to know about it. So these may be the kids who are worried about scars and and people seeing their scars. So they're the kids who are going to be wearing hoodies in the middle of summer and, and those kinds of things. In fact, you know, it can actually impact their lives to the point where they're not going to engage in activities where they could be at risk of somebody seeing their scars. So in addition to the overwhelming psychological pain uh, they're, they feel isolated, they don't feel for a variety of reasons that they can ask for help, maybe in some cases that they even deserve it. Um, so that group really tries to avoid, uh, you know, their peers in particular from knowing about their behavior, but maybe other, like caring adults as well, they don't want to alarm parents and that kind of thing. Uh, then we have the externalizers. So the externalizers, all of those same risk factors apply, but they actually you know, are wanting other people to help them. So they're seeking approval from peers, potentially, Uh, they're desperate for help and they don't know how to help themselves. So they really want other people to be aware of their behavior so that other folks can figure it out. To me, what really puts that group uh, at a heightened risk is the backlash. You know, internalizers are already aware of the backlash that they could be judged. Um, you know, thought of as crazy, whatever that may be, um, for each individual person, whatever those worry thoughts are, but for the externalizing group, those kids, um, you know, they actually end up receiving peer rejection, uh, would often the case. And that's the backlash years ago when I started in this field, um, self-injury was something that, you know, there was a big contagion effect because it was mm-hmm. deemed as cool and, uh, like so many other addictive behaviors for our young population in fact our society even capitalized on the culture at that time I remember walking into Claire's which is a jewelry shop for you know teens and young younger girls and seeing necklaces with razor blades and t-shirts with cut wrists so society absolutely um, you know noticed that there was an acceptance for that behavior and therefore tried to capitalize on it over the years, that has changed from my experience. So, oftentimes, kids are rejected if they are engaged in self injury. They're called emo and uh, whatever the latest term is for that particular group who may be vulnerable and in need of mm-hmm. help. So, that just pushes somebody who's an externalizer into more overwhelm because now they feel cut off from their peers and, you know, other people that may be able to help them add to that school counselors or parents who label them as manipulative, that group's risk can go up pretty quickly.
0: Other than the obvious signs of self-injury, are there other indicators in a student's life that may indicate that they're sort of interested or exploring or thinking about self-injury that an educator should be aware of and can can watch out for?
1: So if we know the student is vulnerable because of life experience, because of events or Um, things that have happened, whether it's current or um, recent or in the past. Uh, I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm also going to be paying attention to their peer group. Uh, Do they have a healthy group of peers, or are they hanging out with other kids who may also be vulnerable, who can reinforce the behavior or glorify it, Uh, or are they completely isolated? Are these kids not connecting to other students, and um, they don't seem to have a lot of support? So those are things I'm going to be teasing out. And, you know, I never make assumptions about why somebody is self-injuring. In fact, rarely do I have somebody who's engaged in only one form of behavior. Typically, the behavior can morph. Um, So if I'm cutting and now that's no longer giving me relief, maybe I'm going to start burning. Um, And sometimes different behaviors have a different purpose so i always want to get to the why and the very first thing is of course not to panic you know we we want kids to talk to us and you know for them to feel safe they need to feel understood and that we're going to be able to hold space for whatever it is they're experiencing Uh, but we ask why so a lot of folks will tend to when they're in that panic place really just focus on the behavior what they can do to mitigate the behavior stop the behavior And that's all absolutely necessary. But the very first thing is to help somebody feel understood. So if, you know, I'm going to ask why, like, why are you self-injuring? What is this behavior doing for you? Um, Does it help? Because sometimes kids will say that it does. Uh, One of the examples I've heard a lot over the years when I ask why is, well, if I wasn't self-injuring, I could be suicidal. You know, this has given me enough relief so that I don't have to move into needing permanent relief. Um, is
0: Is that true? Is there some type of like dopamine release or something in the brain that's causing relief or positive emotion or some kind of good feeling from something that seems like it would hurt so much?
1: Absolutely. Um, there is a chemical dump that can occur through the behavior. Um, you know, I've usually seen it with males that I've worked with, but I definitely have some, uh, adrenaline seeking kids, for example, and they talk about feeling the same rush, uh, that they may get when they're engaging in an adrenaline evoking sport, for example. Uh, So there absolutely is some truth to that.
0: If an educator does find that a student is engaging in self-injury, what should they do? And what is it important for them to know what should they not do in that moment?
1: There's a lot to both of those questions. Those are great questions. And, you know, again, I'm just gonna keep saying it. The number one thing that we do is not panic, but even beyond that, what kids have reported to me over the years that matters most to them when it comes to feeling support by somebody who intervened, is that they felt heard, they felt understood, you know, the relationship is huge, regardless of what the issue is for clients. Um, Over 80% of clients who have PTSD, for example, talk about regardless of whatever treatment modality their therapist uses with them. It's the relationship, did they feel that the person that they were talking to could hold space for them. So You know, I think so many educators that I I work with have such an advantage because I may only see kids once, possibly twice a week, uh, whereas they get to see kids every day. You know, like they're checking in. They have the real-time pulse that I may not have. And they oftentimes will have a relationship with kids during that day-to-day that I don't have. Um, So just knowing that the most important thing that you can do is just to be there and to be present uh, be regardless of anything else you do, um, that's number one. And you know the way that I always talk about this is there's three steps to being present. So the first thing I wanna do is just listen. We have to resist the urge to lecture kids. So I'm kind of answering both those questions, I guess, at the same time. We don't wanna lecture kids. Chances are they've already been lectured. Um, so we don't want to shame them. We don't want them to feel bad about what they're doing. We want to communicate that we know they're doing the best that they can. So holding space. I'm going to listen. I'm going to resist the urge to force feed them advice or you know, what they should be doing instead. I just want to give them that space. Uh, so those are some of the essentials uh, in regards to what not to do. We never want to promise kids confidentiality um over the years anytime that i've had to send a kid on to an assessment uh, at a hospital or i feel that they are at risk and they need a higher level of care i've really even though i've had some kids upset with me at times i've really been able to repair any ruptures through that need to get them a higher level of assessment and i believe i've been able to do that because i tell them at the very beginning when they walk into my office that yeah, what you talk about will stay with us, however, if I feel that you are at risk of hurting yourself or somebody else, or if we know of somebody at risk, I can't promise you confidentiality. So they have that information from the very first time they step into my office to talk about what's going on. And at times I may have to refer back to that. And sometimes they'll remind me, they'll say, well, I wanna tell you something, but I know you're not gonna be able to hold that. So, knowing that, they'll tell me anyway in most cases. so. You know, we don't want to promise confidence. Otherwise, we'll have kids that may feel betrayed by us. Uh, That's one of the biggies, too, that I typically will talk to educators about. And asking them why. Why are you engaged in this behavior? Um, Certainly, if we know that somebody is self-injuring, that right there, uh, even thinking about self-injuring, that right there warrants a referral to a mental health person, whether, you know, maybe starting in the building, but then also connecting them to community resources if that person after their assessment deems that that's appropriate to do.
0: I I was at a trauma training we had over the summer and, um, the presenter there, you know, you were saying ask questions and whatnot. He phrased it as to be curious about somebody else's trauma. And, you know, he was warning, you know, if, uh, if something traumatic happened in your life and a student had a similar traumatic event in their life, it, it might be easier to say, Oh, I know how that feels. And um, he encouraged folks not to say that because you don't know how you know how that felt for you, but you don't know how that felt for that student. And so I thought that was just a great phrase: just be curious about their experience and allow them to share because you're talking, especially for the folks that are internalizing. Um, you know, they don't know how to communicate, and that's part of the the reason why they're engaging in the behavior is maybe they don't know how to get those emotions out. And this is helping them do that in a way that's not healthy long-term obviously, but it's the only, perhaps the only way they know how to do that. So by being curious, I would think would help, help move that student out of a feeling of isolation and out of overwhelming uh, emotions and allow them to express their emotions, and then once they're expressed, we can actually start to analyze them and work on them, right?
1: Yes, I've heard students, that's a great point, Um, many kids over the years have talked about how they do not appreciate when adults say, oh, I've been through this, I know what you're going through. Even if the adult has a similar grief experience, um, kids are very quick to say, you know, that's too bad that that happened for you, but quite honestly, you have no idea what it's like to be me. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is a caution because otherwise, even though we're trying to help and we're trying to connect by saying that type of statement, it is isolating because it, it really conveys to the child that we're, we're not actually curious, mm-hmm. um, that we think we've got, got it figured out. It can be very invalidating.
0: As I was researching um, the statistics uh, for this, so the statistics on uh, depression, anxiety, um, ACEs, obviously, in self-injury and the rate at which they're increasing, which maybe can speak to that some too. But I mean, the stats in the introduction, you know, they're kind of jaw dropping, yeah. um, you know, 50, uh, 50, raising 50% in adolescents that are experiencing depression and so on and so on and so on. so we talked a little about, about what can educators do one-on-one with the student who they find out who is engaging in self-injury or self-harm. What do you think schools should be doing to, Educate students on mental health.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm also going to preface what I'm about to say with, um, you know, just highlighting the fact that I always ask students that question, like, what can we be doing better for you? And so a lot of what, you know, how I'm going to answer that question is inspired by so many of the kids that I've worked with. So, you know, first and foremost, I think it's we have to keep working to destigmatize Mental health. So, you know, I worked at a college campus for several years, where we would do routine depression screenings in the cafeterias, and what we were communicating to to the students was that depression is a real thing. Let's see if you are at risk, and it was a great way to not only catch some vulnerable kids and young adults, uh, but also it just kept the awareness on campus that. Yeah. A lot of people struggle with depression. A lot of people, you know, um, struggle with anxiety, which is alarming as those statistics are. It also conveys to people who are struggling with depression that they are absolutely not alone, Mm -hmm. that it is not an issue that they have to keep in secret, hold in isolation. Uh, So destigmatizing on our campuses, um, you know, that you know, let's do regular depression screenings. And I know certainly there are lots of schools who are doing those already. Uh, We also want to focus on protective factors. And I will say that's the same, you know, I I stress this when I'm also talking to folks about suicide and suicide prevention efforts. Uh, You know, we don't want to just plaster the walls in our schools with posters saying, oh, if you're suicidal, if you know somebody who's suicidal, uh, we don't want to just keep hitting self-injury and suicide because kids who are vulnerable to those behaviors what are they seeing every day? They're seeing suicide, self-injury, which is also why we have to be very careful in regards to how the media um, delivers information about suicides in our communities or in our larger culture as well. Um, so we focus instead on protective factors. So. You know, what is your school's particular set of protective factors? If you don't have a school-wide list, I highly encourage you to devote some time on your teams to developing one. Um, That can be an existing list. That could be, you know, a a list of resiliency factors. Um whatever the school decides is going to be what we're going to implement school-wide, uh, it needs to be embraced so that kids are focused on building their skills and their ability to self-advocate should there be a problem. Um, in addition to that, making sure that kids see the school counselors, that school counselors aren't just stepping into classrooms once or twice a year, that there's ongoing regular interaction with whoever the mental health professionals are, at a school so that should a child become you know more at risk and they need to talk to somebody if they've already established that this is a person who they know they feel like they can trust they're going to be much more likely to walk to that person's office and say hey i need to talk to you versus somebody who's a stranger so wanting school counselors to be more visible is something i hear students say quite a bit and then making sure that we have hotline and numbers also available. So for example, Safe to Tell. It's a great program, but I've certainly had students say that they don't, they're not reminded that it's there. Um, I don't think that's always the case. I think there are some schools that do a great job of letting kids know about those resources and um, advertising those resources. Uh, but we need to make sure that kids are continue to be reminded on an ongoing basis that should they need help, there's absolutely numbers that they can call immediately.
0: So we know that for a lot of individuals, there is a sort of a habitual nature to self-injury. In other words, they're going to continue to do it, um, maybe even if they're seeking help for it, it may take a while to resolve that. So if it is a visible form of self-injury that uh, a teacher can see on a daily basis and they've kind of done what they're supposed to do, they've referred them to a counselor perhaps or the proper services in the school but they're continuing to see signs of self-injury. It's ongoing, in other words, Um, and perhaps even the student is in treatment. Should an educator acknowledge the self-injury if it's visible? Like, how should someone handle that moment? Obviously, the student is doing something that's not healthy for them. We refer them to the proper services. It may take a while for the counseling to help the student move out of this behavior, but it's still obvious that they're doing it. Should we have a conversation with the student about it every single day? Like, how, what should a teacher do? What's the, you know, based on your experience, what's the best way to handle that situation? If they're not the person who's administering the counseling, that's not their job, they're the teacher, but how should they handle that?
1: That's a good question. I would say, you know, unless we feel that the behavior could potentially be life threatening, uh, I'm going to keep coming back to the why. I'm also going to make sure that the mental health professionals are aware that this kiddo is still self-injuring because they may not be giving that information freely to their mental health worker. In fact, because behavior can morph, you know, I'm thinking of a case right now where I had a 15-year-old girl. She really worked hard on um, building more healthy skills versus cutting. She had a lot of success, but what I forgot to do was to ask her about new behavior. And she actually had started um, burning herself. And I did not, you know, ask her about that. Um, she was also engaging in some eating disordered behavior as well. So she may have told somebody else that information, but she wasn't relaying that to me. And it, I had to step back and it gave me an opportunity to educate her about how self-injury can find a side door, that it can morph um, so that she could continue her treatment. So that's, you know, one thing that I would encourage a teacher to do or an educator, absolutely let mental health folks know if that's continuing to happen. And, you know, I've had a lot of success, even my externalizing kids, when I talk to them about how, you know, there may be other kids in the classroom that are vulnerable. So if kiddo is glorifying the behavior, for example, or they're letting other kids know and not caring if they know about it, you know, I, we do, we, we communicate to them how that can impact other students who may be vulnerable. And we do that in a very loving way because we don't want to shame them. But certainly just communicating that, you know, that student is a part of our classroom culture uh, and we want them to be aware of that can really do wonders to help that kid feel like they are connected to their class. Um So those are a couple things I would do, but certainly acknowledging that we know they're still struggling. Uh, We're not going to maybe focus on the behavior as much as the why. And, hey, I'm here for you. I know that you're a senior counselor. And do you want me to walk with you to the counseling office? Um, You know, yeah, I'm here. And I know that this is hard for you.
0: So it's important to note that self-injury and self-harm is not always a suicide attempt. Correct. And it won't necessarily always lead to a suicide attempt. But there is a connection between self-injury and your likelihood of attempting suicide. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Um, but again, it's early intervention. So if I have somebody who's self-injuring without intervention, they're not getting the help they need to stop the behavior, we see that habituation factor and happen. Um, and we can't ever assume how fast somebody's going to habituate. I had a young girl, 15 year old referred to me for self-injury. She was cutting maybe a couple times a week over time that quickly escalated actually to cutting multiple times a day to the point where she was putting her life at risk and had to be hospitalized as a result. So she habituated very fast. So we we don't want to make assumptions about that. um, But, you know, typically I want to get somebody when they've been self-injuring for just a few months. um, Ideally, that's going to be the time that we can make a difference. Uh, and keep them from progressing up that spectrum
0: can you talk about some of the treatments that counselors and uh people like yourself are able to do with students who are engaged in self-injury
1: yeah so dbt is one of the big ones that we know works for kids who are at risk of suicide and self-injuring um so dialectical behavioral therapy and that's a therapy that was actually created for borderline women but we've gotten lots of research indicating that it's an effective treatment for a variety of issues. Um, So that's one that I certainly would want to utilize. Um, You know, other treatments that work well with addictive behaviors could be appropriate, like motivational interviewing, what are your, you know, where are you on a scale of one to 10 in regards to motivation, um, and also confidence in doing what we can to increase those numbers. Um, you know, get, getting buy in, uh, in other words. So that's another therapy that I use. I do a lot of CBT. So kind of behavioral therapy, really, you know, hoping to, to help folks gain f- and further their insight into the connection between their thoughts, emotions and behavior. Um, and then also using a strength based lens. So I really believe that people are their solutions, not their problems. Um, So really helping folks identify what their strengths are, how can we amplify those and use those when we face challenges. And then mindfulness therapies we know can be helpful too um, for folks who may be, you know, are vulnerable populations. So uh, I know lots of schools are implementing uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction as part of the curriculum. Uh, I think those are wonderful uh, things to even to offer students so that they can learn some additional tools and skills.
0: So for those who are looking for more information on how to help those struggling with self-injury or even suicidal thoughts, uh, where would you recommend they turn for help?
1: Um, Well, so there's a few. So uh, ISSS is the International Society on the Study of Self-Injury, that's a great website to get lots of information about self-injury, populations who may be at risk and also additional resources. Um, in regards to, you know, folks who are looking for additional resources with suicidal behavior, I would turn them to the international foundation of suicide prevention and also AFSP. So the American foundation of suicide prevention, um, lots of great resources, uh, for folks wherever they are on the spectrum of suicides. So there's intervention information, there's also prevention, um, you know, what folks can do to increase the prevention efforts in their community. Um, also, postvention resources as well. So c- folks who have been impacted by suicide.
0: Thank you. I was wondering, uh, what, books, uh, what books, articles, or other resources have you personally found to be the most uh, valuable on this topic that you would recommend others who are interested in it check out?
1: With self-injury, I would say, you know, anything by Matthew Seligman, I would highly recommend. Um, I was able to contribute a chapter to one of his books on the treatment for young adults and adolescents who are struggling with self-injury. And he has that lens that he really believes that we can amplify strengths and resiliencies and success, which is very much in line with my own paradigm mm-hmm. with how I approach the work. So uh, in regards to suicide, I think Thomas Joyner, who is one of the bigger names in regards to suicide research and his findings, um, he's got a couple books out that I think are great, but he's also got multiple articles um, that may even be more current than some of his books. So I would recommend checking out his research out of Florida and then uh, also for more information on self-injury, Matthew Knock. Uh, any of his articles, he really... Um, has a lot of great research in regards to vulnerable populations and how to mitigate risk.
0: So that concludes today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to hear Kim talk more about these topics, she will be at the Innovative Schools Summit Las Vegas this coming July, and you can find more information about that at InnovativeSchoolsSummit.com. Additionally, if you are interested in more resources on these topics, please visit InnovativeSchoolsPodcast.com and click on the resources tab and we will have those listed there for you. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's program, please take time to rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is you find your podcast. We would very much appreciate it. Thank you so much.